0: Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is an award-winning English novelist with 12 novels published over the past three decades, including Easter, which won the Waterstones Mardi Gras Award, The Enemy of the Good, and a collection of short stories called Good, Clean, Fun. Described as one of the bravest contemporary British novelists, his work often deals with the knotty themes of faith and sexuality. He's been described by Philip Pullman as our chronicler of the rewards and pitfalls of present-day faith. He's a prolific literary critic, most notably for the London Evening Standard and the Sunday Express, and is occasionally heard on the airwaves with the BBC. Michael Arditi, welcome to Meet the Writers. Hello. It's really lovely to have you here, particularly at this time. As I said, your work deals with faith. And we're in fact talking the morning after this appalling attack on Salman Rushdie. And it was really highlighted, faith and our responses to it.
1: Yes. I mean, the problem is fundamentalism. The problem is people who put their trust in a book and saying this is the absolute truth. Because my sort of religion, and I have a strong religious faith, is a faith in which you know, God gave us reason, God gave us moral integrity, and God you know, gave us the ability to make our own decisions. He didn't say, put you in a straitjacket with books that were written either in the case of the Bible, you know, 3,000 years ago in, in some cases, in some parts, or in the case, say, of the Koran, 1,600 years ago. He he gave us those, and, and, and it's a, a well-known, it's almost cliché, they're a map, they're not a destination. And the, the moment you say, I know the truth, there is no way you can argue. And the fundamentalism at the moment is, is most commonly Islamic fundamentalism. We saw it with the cartoons in Paris. Obviously, we see it with this horrendous attack on Salman Rushdie, who has been under a threat for you know nearly three decades, you know, it's also there in, in other religions, in the Christian religion, with, you know, fundamentalist evangelicals who picket the, the funerals of gay men and say, you know, well, people are mourning and saying, you're going to hell. They're also there with r- fundamentalist Roman Catholics who bomb abortion clinics in the name of the right to life. It's there in the Sikhs and the Hindus. It's there even, in fact, in, in some parts of Asia with fundamentalist Buddhist monks. And one thinks of Buddhism particularly as a religion of acceptance. So it's fundamentalism that's the problem. And I, as a writer, know how books are written, codified, translated. And we all know about, in the terms of the Bible, uh, which I obviously know far better than I know the Quran, though I have read the Quran, We we all know how it's been changed over the years. I mean... In the Old Testament, just for one example, God in some cases has a wife, Asherah, and that's still there even in the King James's uh, translation. There are little references to you know God and His Asherah, but it's often translated as a wooden pole. Instead of saying we're going to worship God and Asherah, they say we're going to worship God at the wooden t- pole, and this is in the story of Abraham, for example. And you know, it, it it's madness to say that these words are the ultimate truth. And we see the effect of the ma- that madness in the appalling
0: attack on Salman Rushdie. Tell us about your own religious beginnings. Were you born in, into a, a very Christian family? No.
1: Well, no, no, not at all. In fact, both my parents were non-believers. And my background is both Christian and Sephardic Jewish, in that sense. And I suppose having a divided background and also having a parents who weren't interested... My mother was interested in, in religion simply in terms of the art that, that it had created, and I still am interested in that. And then I went to a, a, a Methodist school for other complicated reasons, and so I've always been aware of, of, of the relativity, if you like, of religion, but I've always had this great sense of the numinous, of something beyond, I've had it, and this is too private to discuss, but I've had it in my own life, and I just find the question of the ultimate beginnings of the world, quite apart from anything else, depends to me on a divine creator. And I have tried to explore this, and indeed I'm exploring it again in a novel called The Choice, which comes out next um, June, and which... I. given to understand is the first English literary novel, anyway, that that has a, as its protagonist a woman priest. And it's really uh, about her her battle when she discovers that, uh, that the panels in her church have been painted by an artist of a, a less-than-moral lifestyle.
0: Um, Your very first novel, which was Celibate, looks at sexuality and religion. Tell us more about that.
1: Well, because I've never seen sexuality and spirituality as opposites. Of course, they can be, but then almost anything can be opposites if you misuse them. You know, God gave us bodies, and even if you don't believe in God, we have bodies. And, you know, I don't believe we were put on this earth to deny them. I believe, I mean, I don't believe in a bodily resurrection, but I do believe that the creative, moral and loving parts of us, which I've actually, in um, a book, you know, related just almost arbitrarily to the three persons of the Trinity. And I do believe that that is what survives after death. And I believe that we were given bodies to explore, to enjoy. You know, sex isn't a purely procreative act. I mean, in some traditions, you know, it, it is. I mean, it, it should be. Whether it is or not is another issue. And it's also, So I'm told, it's the most powerful human instinct after survival. So if a religion or indeed a government or anybody can control sexuality, you know, they're not going to control that, that sort of... If, you know, if you absolutely need something to survive, you're going to su- attempt to survive. But in terms of sexuality, if they can control it, they can control you. And that's what religions, particularly when religions were much more political powers than they are certainly in the West today, uh, have always attempted to do. Mm. And, you know, you even see it, and this is a commonplace, but in something like the the term Virgin Mary, we do know that the the, the actual translation of of what's been translated as virgin is a young woman. But because of that... It's, you know, given this dichotomy for years of the the Madonna and the Hall. That's just one example. Mm -hmm. But it is iniquitous, and kids grow up today. Of course, kids grow up today in, in, in two ways, because they still grow up in many places with that, you know, rather restrictive, repressive view of sexuality and at the same time, of course, they're growing up with just, you know, pornography everywhere on the internet and in even on television screens and some Channel 4 programmes. So it's understandable they're confused and, in fact, I think it's going to lead to a great deal of
0: problems. How do you reconcile, then, your sexuality with your Anglicanism? Because, of course, we know the Anglican Church is not very accepting of homosexuality.
1: Well... The Anglican Communion, um, of course, is worldwide and incorporates um, countries like Nigeria, where there is still a death penalty for being gay. So, I, as I understand it, you know, Western Anglican bishops and liberal Anglican bishops don't want to make life harder uh, for those you know, bishops in countries like that. But in my view, they should. You know, I remember once many, many years ago, I mean, 30 years ago, walking down Camden High Street and being given a leaflet by somebody which said, Jesus's words on homosexuality. And I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, they're going to be attacked again on some way. And I opened it. And of course, the whole pamphlet was blank because he never said anything about it. In fact, there are some people interpret his healing of the centurion's servant as an acceptance of the fact that the centurion was very intimate with his servant because normally a centurion would not have made that much fuss about a sick servant. You know, I, I'm not saying that's the case, but it is just a way of looking at it. Uh, I go to a church um, in Primrose Hill where I live, St Mark's Regent's Park it's called, which is very liberal. And in fact, you know, they're, they're very accepting of, of gay people as indeed most, I think, uh, liberal and Anglo-Catholic churches are. There are churches, as I said, who, you know, expound on the Bible and say, you no, know, this is the truth. But at the same time, you know, if you actually look at the Bible literally, there are all sorts of horrors. They may say, oh, you know, gayness is terrible. They don't say disobedient children should be thrown from the top of mountains, which is one of the things it says. Mm. They don't say that people of diseased limbs shouldn't go near the temple. Well, I wrote a novel set in Lords. Uh, which is precisely about that. You know, they don't say that women who wear red or scarlet are, you know, beyond the pale. I mean, it's they accuse people like myself of taking bits of the Bible that I like and ignoring others, but it's precisely what they do, and it's precisely, indeed, what everybody should do, because the Bible is a guide. And, yes, the Anglican Church needs, in my view, finally to get its act together. This won't go away, and if... It means that some of the churches break away. Well, tant pis. You know, it, it's, it's a rule, it's a rule I, I've made up myself, <laughs> that nobody wants to be in charge of an organisation that is smaller when they leave it than it was when they take it over, even if it's stronger. We sort of, it's sort of numbers thing. Well, I hope that, I don't think Justin Welby is the man, but if the the next man will actually say that and say the integrity of the church is more important than its size.
0: Mm. I am not a person of faith, but I think the King James Bible is one of the most beautiful works of literature.
1: Absolutely. And in fact, Cranmer's prayer book probably gives us more of the the phrases that are passed into common usage than Shakespeare. I mean, it's quite interesting. They were both, well, it was written slightly before, but all these things were written within, I think, a 60-year, 70-year period, which is, again, I'm not a a linguistic expert, but it was the time that English was sort of being formed in many ways. And given, this is why we can go to a Shakespeare play now and still understand it, whereas we can't sort of, uh, at least I can't, read Chaucer without a glossary. So the Bible has wonderful poetry, It has wonderful fables. It has wonderful history. It has wonderful moral exemplars, but it isn't the whole truth. And it's not intended as a straitjacket on people's ability to love, their imaginations, their creative spirits. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly not intended as a book that you should throw at somebody else.
0: Your creative spirit has been evident from very early on. And in fact, you channelled it mostly, though, into theatre at the beginning.
1: Yes, I think partly because theater is a you know social thing and as as adolescence and then when I was at university it's something you know it's fun in that way it's how you meet people. I also wrote plays largely for the radio, which were done, a few for the stage, which were done without great success. I realized fortunately that the my talents such as they are, were more discursive and expansive, which is I think how fiction works than dramatic and concentrated. I also don't like conflict of any sort in in my life. And I don't actually like seeing it very much on the stage. It's why I don't like plays like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf or the David Mamet plays, because I just don't like people who are being hateful and and shouting at people all the time. So I'm not suggesting that's all that theatre is. But I realise that and... Fortunately, in time, because I think I'd have been a very unhappy man if I'd spent the last 30 years writing plays, which probably wouldn't deserve to go on. (laughs) Um, So maybe I'd have changed, maybe i have got better.
0: Well, you switched to novels, as we said, the celibate, your first novel. After that came Pagan and her parents. Yes. Tell us a little about that.
1: Well, that was a novel which was written about the sort of time that Mrs Thatcher had said... Very prominently, you know, the, the sort of she redefined families as basically a nuclear family. And I wanted to expand on that definition. A woman had died of uh, motor neurone disease and she left her little daughter, Pagan, who I think it's a long time since I've looked at it, I think she's seven, to her best friend, who's gay, to bring up and the woman's parents try to take the child away. And of course, those is it was written, it came out in 1996. So it was written in a couple of years before then. The whole legal system was very different for children in care and um, children within the, the civil law system. But it was more than just about the court cases. But it really was trying to look and define at what is a family. Some very kind reviewer said it was a Kramer versus Kramer for the 90s and I remember that because it immediately attracted the attention of Hollywood the only, not that it was made I should say straight away, but I I did get some very nice option money for a couple of years and I do remember speaking to actually the head of a studio, which was sort of surreal because the line had to be cleared from I think 4.30 till 6 o'clock because of the time differences between London and L.A. and um, I was. In the, I'm not going to do. Perhaps I do a slightly crude version of his accent, which was, you know, you don't know me, Mike, but we. I won't mention the name of the studios. We we just love your great English prose, and we're going to, um, you know, this is going to be the film of uh, 1998 or whatever, and then I'll go back in my own voice. He was very anxious that the, you know, the gay man and his close friend were seen more than they are in the book, because she was going, you know, Candida, that's the name of the character, you know, great, great character. We feel that audiences deserve to see more of her. But of course, the fact that she basically had to die for the plot to to take over. (laughs) Um, And then she went, and it went, and this disease, Michael... Moda, Moda, I'd probably be a bit unfair. Uh, There's messy, Michael, messy, car crash. Um, And because of that, (laughs) and because I think they translated it it from London, Cambridge and Brighton, which was set to sort of New York, Florida and somewhere else, it was literally a car crash. And the film was never made. (laughs) But um, it did help my coffers for quite some time.
0: Talking of disease, of course, you were writing right through that awful period where hiv was prevalent has that shown up much in your work yes
1: in the celibate which was about a young ordinand coming to terms well exactly what we were talking about a bit earlier trying to reconcile his um his spirituality and his sexuality he had a nervous breakdown at a theological college and went to london I can't even remember why, but he did go for some reason. And there he encountered all sorts of a different... He was from a very privileged um, background and also a very closed background, and suddenly he came into contact with people, including people with HIV and AIDS, and had to explore that. It also came in my novel Easter, which is a triptych, and is in, in sort of set well. It's two, the first and the third part, the major parts, are set entirely within Anglican services. The central part, which, if you like, is the the part for the Christ on the of the cross, is for a young curate who doesn't actually have HIV, but believes at that time that he does, and for various reasons. And the first part of the the, the services in the first and third part of the book. Reflect each other; they're they're exactly the same services. But in the first part, we in the same church, we see one lot of the congregation, and the second half we see another lot of the congregation. And the first part is almost the part the Church of England would like to believe is the congregation, and often they're not worthy of that. The second part is more of what I believe is the reality of the congregation. But it really tells the sort of a passion story through the passion story of Christ. And so that does. And otherwise, no, but it actually, again, in this novel, The Choice, which is largely set in 2019, partly so as I don't have to bring Covid in, which would distort it. But it's also set in 1987, which was the year that women were first able to become deacons within the Church of England. And at that point, the protagonist's brother who is gay, and has come back from Cuba, where he has been... He's a rather political person. He brings the issue of HIV into that novel. So, in a way, I mean, Easter was came out in 2000, when it was much more current... And so I must have been writing it in the two or three years before that, in the late 90s. And so I've come back to it you know, 25 years, no, 20 years later, 20-something years later. In a small way, it's not at the centre of the book, but it is a centre of my consciousness, yes, because one of the things, as, as anybody with a faith in God, has to look at disasters, whether they're, you know, absolutely global disasters like the Holocaust and tsunamis and HIV-AIDS or, you know, the disasters in individual lives. I mean, I have my theory of, of suffering, which I've, I've tried to explore in novels and comes again into the choice, but it's, uh, it's, it's something that's there. And as a man now in late middle age who has lived through the HIV-AIDS crisis... It is something that's, you know, always with me. In the same way, I think that people who lived and survived the Holocaust, they they can't forget it. They may have lots of other things in their lives, but it's still there.
0: Your work continued very much with religion at its heart. But then in this latest book, The Young Pretender, which has just come out, you return to your first love, the theatre. So, I'd like to know all about this book because it takes a real person and it's his fictional memoir.
1: I've been fascinated by Master Betty for, I think, about 40 years when, as a very young man, a student, I think, I went to the Hayward Gallery and saw an exhibition that was called Georgian Theatre. And that was at the height of my own student interest in theatre and there was a screen... With lots of caricatures of this young boy, I'd never heard of him, and I've subsequently discovered that many people in the theatre haven't, let alone in a wider world. And yet, between the ages of 1804 and 18, so between the years of 1804 and 1806, he was arguably the most famous person in the country, perhaps Lord Nelson, and the royal family. He was a, a, well; he was an 11-year-old boy when he started. He was 12 when he came from Ireland to, first of all, Scotland and then to England. And he had fallen in love with the theatre. It's a complicated story because though about 30 hagiographies were written when he was between the ages of 12 and 14, they don't add up. His Family is a little bit obscure. They were landowners, which was rare for actors at the time who really were still rogues and vagabonds, even the great ones. And, you know, there's a conflict of why he was born in Shropshire. They then went to Ireland why his did his some of the things say his father bought a farm, some say they bought a factory. I mean, it's as different as that. But it was extraordinary. At the age of 11, he started in Belfast and then 12, playing great Shakespearean roles, Romeo, Hamlet, Richard III, Macbeth, and also roles in plays that we would never see or never want to see, Barbarossa, Gustavus Vasa, the Iron Chest. A couple of them we do know. Uh, Lovers' Vows, because of course that comes into Jane Austen's Mansfield Park. Fanny Price is very disapproving of it, and also Sheridan's Pizarro, because we know it. Because we know Sheridan, it was his sort of great tragedy. But here was this young boy, and he was he wasn't big, playing with adult actors, playing adult roles, and causing an absolute sensation. People died trying to get in to see his plays because the crowds were so rowdy. He was taken up by everybody from, you know, the, the Prince of Wales, a prince, later the Prince Regent, gave him a carriage. The Duke of Clarence, who was connected to the theatre through his mistress, Mrs Jordan, the great comedian who comes into my novel, used to have him to stay. All the great lords and ladies had him receptions after he performed he'd be given you know pills and rum and go and recite and you know it almost sort of rather like judy garland as we heard in in, when she was a young actress in hollywood and in fact he's the prototype child star again i I mean relatively recently there have been these moves you know with britney spears who's had been under the legal control of the courts or his father. Well, that also happened. People tried to get the Lord Chancellor to take him up and make him a ward of court to get him out of the control of his father, who was a venal man. But he was this absolute sensation for two years. John Philip Kemble and Mrs Siddons, who were the leading lights of the Georgian theatre, sort of Ian McKellen and Judy Dench of their day, they retired for 18 months rather than compete with him. He was mobbed. And he, the big question, or well, one of the big questions, is how good was he? I go some way to answering that in the book, and I don't really want to sort of do that through various characters. But whatever else you think, I mean, he must have been able to carry his voice because he played at Covent Garden and Drury Lane, and he was the only actor ever to play both of them concurrently. He was paid more than any actor relatively has ever been paid since. And the auditoria at both Droy Lane and Covent Garden were larger then than they are now. And he was on that stage and he must have been heard because otherwise the people in the gallery would have been throwing very unpleasant things at him (laughs) um, as they did at a lot of other actors and not just the archetypal cabbages and oranges but dead animals and things like that, small animals. Um, But he was this remarkable figure and he had this very, very rapid rise and an equally dramatic fall. And then at the age of 16 he went to Cambridge... People did go earlier then, obviously. And then at the age of 20, he had his comeback. And that's where I've set my novel, because I wanted, obviously, to tell the story, but more I wanted to explore the effect of that sort of celebrity on a boy growing up. And also it was a way to look at child exploitation and, in fact, child abuse, but through a prism. So it wasn't just... Happening and today, and the whole point is that he's actually has repressed a lot of memories, and as he goes through, as he goes through several theatres and various other places during this comeback, we start to see, as he starts to come to terms with what really happened, and then the effect of that on him. So I didn't want to tell it in a straight way, but I also wanted to tell it very much as if he were writing it himself. So it's written, I hope not in a Fustian style, but in the style of an early 19th century memoir. I would challenge you, I'm not going to say on air that I will give a (laughs) £1,000 to anybody who finds not only a word that wasn't in use there, but a word that wasn't in use in the actual usage I give it.
0: Well, there you are. There is a challenge for our listeners. (laughs) Michael, thank you so much for for coming on to talk to me.
1: It's a pleasure. Thank you.
0: The Young Pretender is by Michael Arditti. It's published by Arcadia Books and it's out now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Tamson Howard. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app from SoundCloud, Mixcloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.